Well, good morning. Good to be with you. My name is Dave Grutheson. If we've never met, let's meet. Love to meet you. Let's uh, meet after the service or sometime in the next couple weeks, get to know each other a little bit. Uh, today, I'd like to uh, look, have us look at the last two verses of James chapter 1 in our Bibles. Uh, we'll look it up in just a minute and read it, but uh, we're going to look at James chapter 1, 26 and 27. And I'd like to call the message, Like Father, Like Son. Children of God imitate their heavenly father. My middle son, Jordan, he was in the baptism video. He's having his 18th birthday in a week. It's going to be very fun. He, out of all my kids, looks the most like me, resembles my appearance the most. I'm really sorry about that, Jordan. <clears throat> and he has, but he shares some other things. He has my hilarious sense of humor. At least that's what I, I think it is. And uh, yeah, see? couple people agree. That's good. He also shares some, you know, different interests with me. He likes rocks, and I like rocks. They're interesting. And he has collected baseball cards, and I've collected baseball cards. And so we resemble each other in that way. He also likes to have cereal for dinner. And I have liked to have cereal for dinner, especially when I was when I was younger. And um, so we resemble each other. When Tyler, my oldest, was born, right as he was born, he he looked like me. I couldn't believe it. Jordan looks the most like me out of my kids. So when my daughter Talia was born, my prayer was, oh, please, Lord, let her look like Crescent, my wife. And other people were praying for my kids, and I was blessed. And they even said, oh, Lord, let her look like Crescent. They didn't want uh, the resemblance to be me. Well, like father, like son, we have a few pictures that kind of illustrate this as well, and uh, just fun, different experiences where, you know, as, as, as family, children kind of take on the characteristics and the habits, perhaps, of their parents, the looks and the peculiarities of their parents they resemble in a lot of different ways. Um, similar interests, perhaps same career path would be, you know, a natural thing that happens. Uh, some oddities and, and behavioral, you know, way we dress. Children learn how to dress from their parents. Um, some different, you know, habits and characteristics, mannerisms, and what have you. And then there's that one. That's a little scary. A little scary. <clears throat> well, we resemble our, our parents in many ways. Can you think of any way you resemble your parents or one of your parents? Think of that. A few of the teenagers kind of went like that. It's okay. You'll get over that in a few years, and uh, you'll actually enjoy your parents again, I think. I hope. That'll be good. A better question for us today, though, is how are we like our Heavenly Father? How do we resemble Him? Let's open our Bibles to James 1, 26 to 27. We'll read it. The letter of James is going to help us today by suggesting that if we are truly God's children, we should resemble our Father in heaven. We should, people should be able to see the mannerisms and pick it up that we're like our Heavenly Father. Here's what James 1, 26 and 27, our focus for today says. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James kind of takes it to us there a little bit, doesn't he? Let's pray together and we'll get into it. 
Our Father, the unfolding of your word gives light. We love your word. It's our life. We love your church and ask you to build it up this week here in Rochester, in Romania, all over the world. We love you. You are a great Savior, a great Lord, a great friend, and you're so much more than that. So we want you to be worshipped and adored and listened to today like never before. Would you please bless the word of God to our children today in their groups throughout the building? Would you produce in them a love for God and people that is unprecedented and that will bring you great glory? Lord, may your word carry weight with us today here in this worship center. May we humbly receive it and may you bring clarity and power to it. This we pray in the matchless name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. <clears throat> so in the verses we just read, James gives us three indicators of true saving faith, indicators that somehow if someone played show and tell with our lives, they can conclude that we belong to God, our Father. We resemble Him. We are indeed His children. They are noticing the resemblance. But three times in the last 10 verses in James chapter 1, James kind of grabs our shoulders and stops us and makes us look him in the eye. And he says the phrase, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Okay, okay, I got it. I got it. He said it enough. I think I got it. Last week, we were warned that if we just hear God's word, but don't do God's word, we are deceiving ourselves into thinking that all is well between us and God. Today's verses take that thought a step further. Not only are you deceived, but your whole religious experience is worthless to save your soul and to make you right with God. James is really concerned about this, obviously. It's a big concern. God himself is also really concerned about this. If anyone has saving faith in Christ alone, thinks they're a Christian, here's one way to know. And James puts it in the negative. He says, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, he is deceived and his religion is worthless. We all know what a bridle is, the thing on a horse, you put the bit in the mouth, you got the reins and it steers the horse and the bridle and the reins and the bit allow the horse to be controlled and directed, and God wants us to bridle our mouth and our tongue so that it, the words coming out or the words not coming out will be controlled and directed. So write this down in your notes, if you would. True children of God, therefore, imitate their Heavenly Father in life-giving speech. If we're in His family, we're going to resemble Him in the way we talk in the things we say and the things we don't say. We imitate our Heavenly Father in life-giving speech. So I want us to listen to these words about God, about what He says, and words from God directly to get a sense for how God speaks and what happens with the words that He uses. And these are all from the Bible. In John 17, it tells us that His word is truth. We know everything that comes out of His mouth is true. Romans 2 tells us that his kindness leads us to turn from our sin. His words cause uh, catastrophically positive change in us if we listen to him, have faith. Deuteronomy 32 tells us that these words in the Bible aren't just idle words 
for us. They are our life. Joshua 1.9, God says to us, I want you to be strong and courageous because I am with you wherever you go. God's words cause us growth and cause us strength. Psalm 119.105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You help me see where I'm going and avoid the pitfalls. John 6 tells us that God alone, Jesus alone, has the words of eternal life. Psalm 119 says, Turn my eyes from worthless things and give me life through your word. God himself told us in Isaiah 43, For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. Others pile on this this nature of God to have life-giving words. His words are like treasure. They taste like honey. His testimonies are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. This is what our Father is like. God speaks and worlds pop into existence. Lives are coming into being. Eternal life is granted. Overwhelming kindness and forgiveness is extended. My encouragement would be enjoy his words this week. Get into his word and enjoy them. Bask in them. See how good they are. See how great they taste. Try Psalm 119 on for size. The biggest chapter in the Bible lists uh, over a hundred verses that will tell you about God's word and God's words. Now, we contrast this with what James says about humanity's use of words. In James 3, 8 through 10, this is how James describes our speech. He says, our tongue is a restless evil, full of deadly poison, in contrast to God's tongue. With it, our tongue, we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse people. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. These things ought not to be so. So our angry outbursts, our criticisms, profanities, our constant complaining reveal perhaps a heart not yet submitted to the rule of Christ. What comes out of our mouths reveals the state of our hearts. So bridling the tongue with reins and bit is about directing and controlling what comes out, what doesn't come out. And so that Ephesians 4.29 describes us that our words benefit those who listen. Write these, uh, write these four things down in your notes. In which of these areas might you need to bridle your tongue? In which of these areas might you need to bridle your tongue? Maybe it's at home. Maybe it's during conflicts, arguments, and such. And two other areas we'll touch on briefly. Maybe it's in the political arena. Politics, election season, it's getting pretty ugly out there. And maybe even in race relations, the racial divide in our country. In which of these areas might you need to bridle your tongue? So the Bible's full of godly wisdom. I'm going to read you a few verses here that will help us keep our mouth bridled and in check. And you think, which of these can you use today in one of these areas? In Proverbs 10, it tells us, when words are many, sin is not absent. Be sensible and turn off the flow. I love that version. It's very vivid in the way it's written. How many talkers do we have in the room? I, I'm a talker. Consider yourself a talker. 
Okay. How many listeners say, yep, they're a talker? How many listeners do we have? Okay. Talkers and listeners. That's a talker verse, isn't it? When words are many, sin is not absent. Be sensible and turn off the flow. Here's another talker verse. (laughs) When a fool keeps silent, even he is thought of as wise. A lot of wives just elbowed someone else sitting next to them. I'm not sure. No, that would never happen. Uh, maybe it's Ephesians 4.29 that we could use in our, in our conflicts or even in our political discussions. Use words that benefit the situation and benefit those who listen. Remember, whatever you say or do, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. As I go into work and hear politics talked about a race issues talked about her at home. I am representing Jesus in my speech. Give thanks in all circumstances. Where can we apply that? I like this one. If you're going to brag about anything, brag that you understand and know God. And then the one that James gave us just a few weeks ago, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Which of these can we apply? Now, in the last year or so, the most antagonistic speech that I've heard where people are quick to speak, slow to listen, and quick to become angry, whether it's on social media or just in side conversations, are in politics and racially related issues. It seems to heat up fast, and it seems to get angry quickly, and barbs are thrown very quickly and dramatically. If you don't agree with me, man, I'm going to take a piece out of you. What I would say is, um, we as the church, let's set a different tone. It's time for us to set a different tone. Even among Christians and social media, it doesn't look so pretty out there. If we get disagreed with, we lay into these things pretty hard. Let's represent our Father in heaven well and set a different tone during the election. Can we and should we? Absolutely. This is an odd political year. It's not easy to stay out of the fray. But our king is set. The Lord Jesus is on the throne. He's not going anywhere. In that sense, our election is over a long time ago. His rule is secure. Our lives are being governed righteously and justly by him. My encouragement to me and you is keep yourself in play as a witness. Keep yourself in play. had an opportunity to talk with a person uh, that I know a little bit, and this person is uh, about as diametrically opposed in everything, in every issue for me. Politically, um, relating to God, I got to tell her that I took a job last July at Harvest Bible Chapel as the adult discipleship pastor, and if you want to become a disciple of Jesus, I'll help you. And uh, she just looked at me and uh, shook her head like, oh, okay. But uh, then we started talking about, um, she made a comment about one of the political candidates, and I could feel, oh no, here we go, you know, my my blood started to pump a little bit, and uh, I decided, you know, uh, quick to speak, or quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. So I listened to her go on to her thing, I didn't counter with my thoughts or any of that, and it was blessed because at the end of our conversation, she looked at me and said, You know, um, I can talk to you about this. It's rare that I can talk to somebody who doesn't see eye to eye with me. I felt like, good, I got one in my victory column. You know, I I kept myself in play for further conversations about more important things like Jesus and the gospel. 
Let's keep ourselves in play as a witness for our king by being slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to become angry. If Christ isn't ruling our lives as evidenced by our speech, what difference does it make who wins the election and rules the country? Now let me just make a comment about the racial divide in our country because our society isn't going to fix this. The government isn't going to bridge the gap. The only significant progress that can be made will be made through the church, the body of Christ, where all nations and all people groups find justice and common ground. Now, in my case, it's important being a white man that I intentionally make friendships and engage in conversations with people of color. Not to engage or debate issues, but to extend friendship. To listen, to ask questions, rather than talk and tell stories. To share my opinion quickly back with somebody or, you know, however it's going to go. I don't know, and so I need to ask questions. I believe progress can be made one conversation and one relationship at a time with people of different races building friendships together, being quick to listen, slow to speak, and being slow to anger. Now, the words of James are hard to shake. They're pointed, and they're coming at us because James is very concerned about us and our spiritual state. They're pointy, and if... Um, you know, he says to us, if anyone thinks they're religious and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his heart and his religion is worthless. So write this down. How do you know when you are being deceived? He warns us about being deceived. How do you know when you're being deceived? The answer is you don't, or you wouldn't be being deceived, right? Who do you listen to? Who do you listen to? Who speaks into your life? Are you a teachable person? Who is close enough to you to speak truth and love into your life? The way it works is if it pops into our head, it must be true. We don't, we just kind of, I thought it, therefore it's true. And we start to do it, we start to say it. So that starts us down a path of, 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 of self-deception when it just pops into my head and here I go. And so I want to make a small group plug now. If you're not in a small group, this is your time. It's time to get into a small group. Don't be isolated in your discipleship. Learn from and listen to others. Help keep each other walking with Christ and listening to him. Talk to me or Ken Henley, call the office, check the friendship register, all kinds of uh, different ways, and pursue a small group this week. Operators are standing by, call now. The first 50 will receive a Ken Henley bobblehead doll. (laughs) I would like a Ken Henley bobblehead. If I would tap his head, I bet his head would just kind of go like that. Seriously, though, uh, small groups are the way here at Harvest to guard against our blind spots that form very quickly. We're meant to live for Christ in community with others in part because they can see what we can't see in ourselves. So don't stay isolated. If you're already in a group, which many of you are, let me encourage you to get beneath the surface in your mutual ministry time especially. Remain open, remain vulnerable and teachable. Become more open about where you need the Lord's grace where you need to grow in your life. Trust the process that the Lord has you in of discipleship and accountability. 
All right, so with the deception thing, if you think that was a pointy jab from James, wait for this one. Write this down. Jesus said this. James would agree with him. I'm sure they talked about it. Is your spiritual father the devil? Is your spiritual father the devil? This is where the passage is taking us, so we're spending a lot of time in it, where we're evaluating and taking a hard look at our actions, do it, does it match up with our, with our stated beliefs? Jesus' words are life-giving. James was very concerned about our self-deception. But Jesus' words sting because his life-giving words also include warning. And this warning is found in John, John chapter 8. Jesus said this to the Jews who believed in him. The Jews who believed in him, this is a conversation they had with Jesus. Jesus said this to them, My word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They said to him, the Jews did, that believed in him, We have one father, even God. But Jesus said, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God because he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Because whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is you are not of God. What would our response be? What would would your response be if Jesus said that to you? If Jesus said that to me. Now, the Jews who believed in him, their response was to call him demon-possessed. Their response was to pick up rocks so that they could stone him to death. Would yours be to call on him to help you? Oh, Jesus, I don't want my father to be the devil. I don't want to be deceived. Help me. I call on your mercy. Would you call on his mercy and his wisdom? Would you humbly accept the implanted word from the Bible, which is able to save your soul? So if God is our Father, we will imitate his life-giving speech. And I'll write this one down. If God is our Father, we will resemble his deliberate care for the afflicted. James 1.27 tells us, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, true saving faith, is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Let's look at a passage from Deuteronomy 10. This one I'm not going to just read to you. I'm going to put up on the screen, and then I'll read it to you. But notice God's character, the greatness of God, and what he is all about. This isn't what we see in a human ruler typically. His greatness is beyond description, and yet look at his heart come out. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. In the ancient world, a sojourner was a foreigner or a temporary traveler a person that in that culture had nowhere to go. Maybe they're short on food and water. They probably wouldn't know where to stay. They could have been robbed or attacked on the way. They were on their own. 
They were vulnerable and they were at the mercy of the people in the town where they entered. If there were orphans and widows, if they didn't have family to take care of them or the means to move back to where their family was from, they had no way to support themselves. They were on their own. There was no social welfare. It was all up to them. They were in a bad place. And, and God, the great God, says, I care about people like that. For us to resemble our Heavenly Father, then, his children care about people that are afflicted going through it. Now, the way it was worded in our passage, James says to visit the orphan and the widow. And I'm like, hey, oh, this is easy. I can do that. You know, I'll find one in the hospital and I'll go visit them. You know, I can do this. This is simple. Well, that's not exactly what it means. I want to show you a picture. Um, The idea is not of a hospital visit, but more of kind of an intentionality. That is a sliver that I pulled out of my thumb about three weeks ago. It's about an inch long and it went into my thumb. And what I did is notice that my thumb really hurts. I knew I had something in it. And my thumb was twice the size of my other thumb. I was pulling weeds and junk in the yard and, ah, you know, one of those. And so I have a sliver. And I'm like, okay, I'll pull the little tiny sliver out. And so I couldn't get it out. The next day I'm playing with it and I'm, I'm looking at it and, and I'm, I'm, I'm deliberately trying to alleviate the suffering. I'm afflicted. My thumb hurts. And it's twice the size and it's hot red, you know, that whole thing. I got to get this thing out. So I'm playing with it and all of a sudden I see a little piece and after about five minutes of that, it took me about an hour total, but I pulled this thing out of my thumb, you know. I'm like, whoa, when is this thing going to stop? So I think that's pretty cool. I I wish I would have kept it, but I did keep the picture. So you can see what a tough guy I am, you know. But that's the idea of visit the afflicted or the orphan and the widow. Deliberate action that alleviates suffering, that brings help and hope wherever possible. This is what God's children do because this is what their father does. So write this down. And I'm asking you, please write this down. Um, Christ's compassion... Christ's compassion, because it's awfully important to look at Christ's compassion, it was a costly one. It's a costly concern. Christ's compassion was costly. It wasn't easy. We know that he stooped so far down to help us in our despair and our doom and our sin. We know that enduring the cross in spite of that, like how do you be God and then become us? How do you do that? That is compassion beyond our understanding. But enduring the cross was even a joy for him. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. His love for us is beyond great. And his care is related famously in these following verses. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 tells us, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That's what he did for me. Isaiah 53, 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
And then Ephesians 2, 4 through 5 tell us, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This is dramatic. Uh, Just the adjectives can't come fast and furious enough to describe the compassion of Christ and the compassion of of our God. We read those verses because we want to show them off this morning, don't we? A summary of his outreach to us when we were his enemies, that's what he did for us. When we were lost, that's what he did. When we were condemned, when we were helpless, when we were of no use to him whatsoever, that's what he did for us. And that's the stir in a child's heart resembling his father or her father that wants to do the same thing, a deliberate care for the afflicted. Now, he gives much. His compassion cost him much. Is it right for his children to take from him and hoard it for ourselves? Pure devotion back to him looks like a deliberate and costly care for the afflicted. I just got a new basement in the last year in my house in Indiana. Nice. And as I read this passage, I wonder, what am I known for? Am I known for tithing, sacrificial giving, meeting needs, demonstrating compassion? Or am I known for my fuzzy carpet in my basement? How about you? Are you known for more uh, for your activities and your stuff or for works of compassion? Now, our impact individually, usually, it, it comes together most corporately or together, like in the church here. Harvest Palis reaches out. We're a part of a church that does demonstrate compassion, and we want that to continue to build and swell and be known for it. We're spreading the compassion and hope of the gospel this week in Romania. People that are lost without Christ in Europe and we're reaching out. That's good. We help to start Harvest in Rochester, New York. We continue to look for ways to help them and other churches to get up on their feet and be strong. That's, that's very good. We give a significant chunk of our yearly budget to church planting around the country, around the world helping to meet physical, spiritual, emotional, financial needs. That's good. We have small groups set up at our church to better care for our people in good times and bad times. We have a benevolence fund that helps many in our church when they face physical and financial needs. That's good. Right now, there's an orphan care meeting going on in the building. Hope that goes crazy. That's good. The father's heart is big, like father, like son, so his children's heart have to be big for the afflicted as well, deliberate care. Doing not just talking. May our father make our six-year-old church mature like a 60-year-old church in this area and be a compassionate force for his glory. So James is concerned. He wants us to know that so-called faith that doesn't produce action is unable to save us. It's worthless. So he gives us these three areas to evaluate our life, to see if we are a child of God. Are we imitating him in how we use or don't use our words? Do we bear a family resemblance to him in deliberate care for the afflicted? And then you can write this down. Are we demonstrating a visible devotion to God? Keep yourself unstained from the world. Are we demonstrating a visible devotion to God? 
Now you can write this down also. In order to do that, we need to guard against a critical complaining spirit and a shortage of demonstrated love. Guard against a critical complaining spirit and a shortage of demonstrated love, which is kind of like reviewing the first two points. Part of the way we keep ourselves from being stained or polluted by the world is pay attention to the first two points. Let's make sure the world's influence doesn't come out of our mouth. Let's make sure that the world's influence doesn't come out of our heart into the lives of other people, but that God's influence comes out of our mouth and comes out of our hands and feet. So pay attention to the first two instructions. Demonstrate love. Don't just talk about it, right? Guard against a critical complaining spirit. So bridling our tongue means, at least in part, replacing criticism with love. Replacing uh, complaining with gratitude. So pray about it more, complain about it less. Visiting orphans and widows in their affliction is a way to guard against a shortage of demonstrated love. Because actions always accompany faith. To have the life of God in us and remain unchanged is unthinkable. But now, I've said enough so that even in my spirit, um, what do I do if I can't pull this off? What do I do if I can't, I can't do this? We face a constant issue of commitment and loyalty. Constantly, the world is battling for our commitment and our loyalty and pulling it away from God. And we're up against the highest standards in the universe. God demands perfection, right? And he wants his children to be perfect as he's perfect. We're bombarded daily to have fun without God, to make decisions without God, to build relationships without God, and to solve problems without God even being involved a little unstained from this world? I I forget. I I get complacent. I put created things in the Creator's place. A recent attempt to love the afflicted even didn't work out so well, and it revealed my heart and where I need God's touch. So I um, was, not that long ago, a few years back actually, uh, I bought an extra lunch. We were doing a, uh, we were at a place where we were feeding people that needed lunch, about 300 people. And after that, there were still people that hadn't had lunch. And so I thought, I'm going to care. And so I bought a second lunch. I had my lunch, and then I went, and I was looking for someone who might need a lunch and try to give that person that lunch. And I thought, this will be a great way for me to show the love of Christ because I love God so much and I love people so much that I'm going to serve, and this is going to be great. And so sure enough, Coming down the alley, very quickly at me, was a man who wanted my lunch. And I was like, cool, this is my opportunity. So he's coming at me, and he came up to me, and I had my, my box of, of uh, Popeye's, the, the Popeye's restaurant right by this place, and I opened it, and he didn't say a word to me. He just started grabbing the food, tossing the biscuits, and took off down the, down the alley. And I'm like, this isn't what I signed up for. Where was my warm fuzzy? What happened? I'm supposed to be blessed, and he was mean. You know, and you felt funny. And, and what, I, what it did is it, it opened me up, and I said, you know, I didn't love him. I loved me. 
That was my problem. I loved me. I wanted to be, feel good about myself. I didn't care about him. I didn't care what God wanted. I loved me. I didn't love God. How am I going to demonstrate care when my heart is so conflicted? If it's left up to me alone to do this, it's left, left up to you alone to do this, we're in trouble. Jesus said to us something very, very important. Well, a lot of things, but one thing he said was, unless you come to me as a little child, you can't go to heaven. And so, you know, you look at a little child, and, and how does a little child approach their parent? A little two-year-old, little three-year-old, they love their parent, and they demonstrate it by they want their parent and they need their parent. And so Jesus says, if you don't want me or need me, how can you go to heaven? Makes sense? And so as we apply our father, and we're not, I'm not a 50-year-old child of my father, I'm like a three-year-old child of my father. And um, my, my attempts to bridle my tongue are like my three-year-old scribbles on a page. And I hand it to my father, and it's a mess. But he loves it because it's for him. And over time, as I continue to show him my scribbles, he'll take my hand and teach me how to color in the lines and work with me and make my attempt more beautiful. Also, when we want our little kids, our three-year-olds, to do something, we don't write them a letter and send it to them and say, go clean up your room. We don't write them a letter and say, go clean up the backyard. We do it with them. We go with them. We teach them how. We show them. We do it with them. So we take our little three- or four-year-old, our five-year-old, into the backyard and show them that we cut the branches and put them here, and, and they help us, and we do it with them, and we show them. And when they're going to do something dangerous, we stop them and show them again. When it's time to put away dishes or clean your room, we do it with them. And that's what our Heavenly Father does. And that's where the strength and the power for us to live this way comes from. So write this down in your notes. Through the Holy Spirit, commands are turned into promises. Through the Holy Spirit, commands are turned into promises. We receive Christ into our life. He gives us his Holy Spirit to live in us, not to just send us notes or give us phone calls, but to live inside of us and help to direct and control us. And so when the Holy Spirit indwells you and God is your Father, the commands are turned into promises. So it works a little bit like this. You know, we have the Ten Commandments. Well, by the time I was five, I had broken five of them, maybe six. Some of you, I think, broke about eight by that point. But the, 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 the commandments are turned into promises. So we hear a command. You know, anybody see the Ten Commandments movie a couple weeks ago? Four hours of your life, you can't ever get back. Actually, I love that movie. As cheesy as it is, written, when was it, like 1930-something? I love that movie. And, um, but it shows God as this kind of, like, somebody you'd be afraid of and not want to get too close to. It doesn't show him great enough, and it doesn't show him personal enough, but how could 
Hollywood pull that off, right? So we take what they, what they give us, I suppose. But what happens is the, the thundering voice of God says, you shall not steal. And then, you know, it does the thing in the stone. And it's kind of dramatic. When, when I first saw it and I was eight, that was cool. So that's what God's like. Wow. Well, he's really big and scary. And so, you know, it, it's kind of a, a, a thunderous thing. Huh. You shall not steal or I will smite you. You know, that's kind of how it feels a little bit. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, it becomes a promise, not just a command. You shall not steal. You shall not lie with the Holy Spirit working his good will in you becomes a promise. You shall not lie as we let the Lord direct us and guide us. He, he purifies us. He helps us. He helps us fight the sin and the evil that lurks inside of us. So what I'd like to do as we start to head to the end is I'd like us to look at James chapter 1 together and do a little survey. We're just going to look at the Lord working in and with and through his children. It's all over the place. We have these commands, right? We have, you know, uh, guard your tongue and we have, you know, obey the word, you know, do it, don't just hear it. We have all these, all these commands in the scripture, but we also have woven in there the hand of God and the grace of God, the gospel of Jesus, woven throughout James chapter 1. And it's important for us to see that because that's where we're going to get the strength and the power to live his way. So he's working in us. He's giving us new desires. And we see the gospel in verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. What that means is, God on his own saw us and brought eternal life to us. And he brought us forth means he's birthed us. He's given us new birth. Those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, God did this. He gave you new birth. And now as his children, you begin to bear a resemblance to your father. So the evidence of this happening is found in our speech, found in our compassion, found in our holy living. He is doing this with us. He doesn't just throw a letter at us and say, do it. He's with us, helping us just like we would with our young children. So in verse 1, look at verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I kind of run through sometimes the openings, but that one caught me. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. How did that happen? God made him something he wasn't before. Before, he and you and I were God's enemies. Now we work for him. That's a pretty dramatic shift. We were God's enemies. We were lost. We were dead in our sins, and now we work for God. How cool is that? In verse 3, notice that he tests us, and he has a workout plan. He brings trials and wants to embrace this tree. He wants us to embrace this training. He's going to put us through a training program as his servants, and he wants us to embrace it by joyfully worshiping, walking, and working for Christ, even during hardship. In verse 5, look at verse 5. He gives us something we never had before and we couldn't generate on our own, godly wisdom. In verse 12, he promises us an unbelievable future. He's going to give us, as we persevere, the crown of life. 
That's a wildly, unbelievably dramatic change in identity. Once we were not a people, now we are the people of God. Once we were dead in our sins, now we are alive in Christ by grace through faith. Once we were his enemies, and now we've been adopted into his family, his children. This is what God is doing in his children, so that we have pure speech, we have compassion, we have personal holiness. In verse 17, look at this. He gives us everything good in our lives, everything we need. Anything good that comes into our life is from him. And so that kind of reminds us, you might say it like this, let's, you know, he gives us these good things so that our appetite for God increases and so that we don't feed on the junk food of the world and lose our appetite for the feast that God has for us. Verse 21, he plants the word of God into our soul and tells us, don't just listen to it, do it. You'll be prosperous and successful if you do. So the truth of God is in us and we cultivate it, God nurtures it and waters it. He helps us garden it as we participate in God's word. It grows and takes over more and more. So God is working like crazy to produce a love in us that proves our faith in Christ. He wants our full attention, our full participation, our full cooperation, and you know, live into your new identity. He's made you his servant, so serve him well. He offers you wisdom, so ask for it. He's planted the word of God in you, so cultivate and feed it. He's made you Uh, He's adopted you as a child. He's the king, so you're a princess or a prince. So live like a prince or a princess, not like the beggar in the gutter that you once were. So as we, with his strength and wisdom working in us from James, that's how we keep the world's polluted ways at bay now. Again, pure speech, loving compassion, personal holiness. This is the religion that God our Father accepts. And like father, like son, he wants to see exhibited in his children. And interestingly, the three themes, these three themes at the end of James form the agenda for the rest of the letter. I don't know about you, but I need more help in bridling my tongue than 10 minutes talking about it today. You know, as part of the message, I need more help. And chapter 3 and into 4 is going to help that. I need more help with my compassion. That's coming in chapter 2. I need more help in my personal holiness. That's coming at the, you know, throughout, but in chapter 5. So this forms the agenda for the rest of the letter. Now, gratefully, lovingly, James is going to continue to hound those who have an external form of faith. Those who think they're religious but have a faith that's powerless to save them because they haven't received Christ and become a child of God. And he doesn't want them, and if it's you, he doesn't want you to go on in your fatal deception any longer. So throughout James, James is coming after you until you come to Christ. So if that describes you, or if you wonder if that describes you, in in a few minutes after our closing song, We're going to have our prayer team up here come and talk and pray 
with our prayer team. Now, perhaps God is your Father, Christ is your Lord and Savior, but you would like to tighten the bridle on your tongue. Maybe the world is squeezing you into its mold and you're losing. And maybe you're slow to listen, quick to become angry. Our prayer team is up here. Also, come and talk and pray with our prayer team. They're here. Use them. Let them help you. It's good. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, thank you uh, that you are strong when we are weak. Thank you that you are so, so active in and around us. You're a great father showing his children how to live and how to be. You're helping us. You're, you're making us something we're not. You're giving us every opportunity. Help us to tap into your wisdom. Help us to swim in your love so that we might speak purely, live holy, and be wildly compassionate. We pray this in your name. Amen.